Welcome to our Policy, Guns and Money Bigger Picture series with me, Gabriel Zito, a special presenter. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has sent shockwaves across Europe and the international community as countries pledge aid and assistance to the Ukrainian government. In this week's episode, Brendan Nicholson speaks with the Embassy of Ukraine's Charge d'Affaires, Mr. Vladimir Shalkivsky, for a discussion on the conflict, the different warfighting capabilities of Russian and Ukrainian forces, and potential avenues for the resolution of the war. Welcome to Aspie. It's very nice to see you here, and I can imagine you're an extremely busy man. The world is shocked, most of it, by what's happening in your country. And a large number of countries, including Australia, have offered a range of assistance, including munitions to resupply the Ukrainian armed forces. Is it possible, given the military situation, to get those sorts of supplies through to the frontline troops in Ukraine? Good day. Thank you for the question. Yes, we are grateful for such fast and tremendous response from around the world and even well from very small countries we receive offers of support australia yesterday sent its first cargo plane to europe with non-military supply for ukrainian armed forces currently poland serves as a gateway to ukraine in terms of receiving and transferring that supply and then it goes through the western part of Ukraine to other regions. So it's uh, too early to make significant conclusions but at this point we have only a couple of cities and towns and regions that we are not able to reach. As of today we are still able to bring supply, including Kyiv, major city, central Ukraine pretty much, and southern part of Ukraine as well, like Odessa. There are no critical kind of deficit of uh, food or water or petrol. Of course we need it, but we need first of all weapons. So a lot, to my mind, will depend whether Mr. Lukashenko will intervene and bring Belarusian forces that can be used in order to cut the line of supply that goes through the western part of our country. Do you think that's likely? I believe that he is under tremendous pressure from Putin to get it done. And Mr. Lukashenko depends on 100% from Putin. But... I would probably reserve my prediction. I still hope that Belarusian forces will not intervene officially, yes, because there are some reports that they are already on the ground. But in case the Belarusian army officially roll in into our territory, it will, of course, it will be challenging to us. But we will prevail. We will sustain this pressure and we will fight back. Right. Do you have any clear idea of what Putin's goal actually is? Do you think he wants to capture all of Ukraine, even with the limited forces he has? Or do you think partition is a possibility? I believe his strategy is evolving uh, due to the situation on the ground. His initial idea was to 
put entire Ukraine under control with the new pro-Russian government that will come with the Russian military superiority during short winning battles around Kyiv. But since it is not the case and he cannot succeed or his military cannot succeed with this, there is an option for him to establish second capital somewhere in the eastern part of Ukraine and declare new country as it actually we had similar experience 100 years ago when the Bolsheviks, Russian Bolsheviks, attacked Ukraine. And then uh, they established actually capital in Kharkiv, which is right now second major city in Ukraine. And how long did that last? Good question. It will require significant occupational force from Russia because there is significant resistance from regular citizens, even Russian-speaking citizens with the Russian ethnicity, simply because the war became so brutal from Russia after bombing our civilian infrastructure, after all uh, more than 350 civilians' death and 16 children from our side, it will be really difficult for ordinary people to kind of get over it easily. What can you tell us about Russian and Ukrainian military casualties? We have some estimates about Russian casualties that are currently at least more than 5,000. We have information about casualties from our side, as I mentioned, civilians and including children, it's about 350. And in terms of military, it's, well, situation is deteriorating, of course, and obviously fighting continues. We have casualties in at least more than 1,000 right. military. Now, the Russians are admitting to something like 450 or 500 casualties. Do you think it could be as much higher? Like you're you're estimating something like 10 times that. Uh, I believe it's much higher, yes. But, of course, given what's happening on the ground, it's really difficult to make precise counting. And that is why when everything ended, figures can be quite different. Have you taken many Russian prisoners? Yes, we have a number, at least a couple of hundreds, maybe more, of uh, Russian prisoners, because some of them are actually so well equipped and uh, prepared, they didn't know that this is actually real war. They thought they were told that this is exercises, military exercises, or that they're going to liberate Ukraine and people will greet them with flowers, but instead people greeted them with Molotov cocktails. So it's a big surprise to them. And some of them are just preferred to give up. Have members of the civilian population actually used Molotov cocktails? We've seen the film of them making them. Uh, Yes, I know that they are using them. But I cannot prove it with the video reports. But I know stories about we have enough grenades in our military and territorial forces so far. But I was informed that there were cases of actual usage. And we've heard of Russian soldiers asking civilian Ukrainians for petrol. Has that happened? Yes, petrol. At least there were a couple of reports about the Russian military stealing gas and petrol from our Ukrainian gas stations and asking for direction among locals because they got lost. Right. Now, 
we've seen the images on television here of armoured columns from Russia stretching back along that highway for apparently 60 kilometres. Is that unassailable? Do, is, do the Russians have such air superiority that they can safely do that? Are the, and is, is that a, a force that Ukraine can resist? We resist effectively so far. So I believe with all that supply that is coming, we will resist effectively further as well. Of course, there are casualties. Of course, Russia has superiority in air, but we do have drones like these Turkish Bayraktars that are proved that they are quite effective in terms of bombing those uh, colons with the military trucks and tanks. The amount is really tremendous and impressive, but we have very high morale among our military and territorial defense forces that are ready to fight back. Of course, territory of Ukraine is very big and we cannot cover entire lines of defense around the country. There are specific areas, first of all, around the major cities and towns that we are kind of defending. But we believe that we are doing this effectively and we defend our country and we know how to do it. We've heard stories of some Russian saboteurs, spies, being apprehended and novel ways in which Ukrainians identify them. Yeah, uh, this is a kind of almost anecdotal or funny story about asking those captured but not kind of proved that they're a spy or saboteur group to pronounce some of the complex Ukrainian words. And actually it, it works better than showing fake Ukrainian passport because, of course, with the all-Russian technologies and possibilities, they can produce fake documents in hundreds, in thousands. But for ordinary person to pronounce some kind of local words, it's quite a challenge. And obviously there'd be a significant number of ethnic Russians living in Ukraine. How are they responding to this? That's a good question, because actually those fighting took place so far in eastern part of our country, where there is a significant minority of ethnic Russians. But we see that how local communities react when the Russian troops entering the villages, the towns, that they are supporting our military, that they are supporting territorial defense forces, because simply they do not want to align with the Kremlin, with Putin. Right. Putin has raised the level of preparedness of his nuclear forces. Do you think there's any likelihood he would use a nuclear weapon? I do hope no, but I cannot say that he's a mentally stable person or kind of uh, you can apply normal logic to his actions. So... It's really difficult to comment. Right. To what extent is intelligence from people like the Americans helping? Like the Americans clearly knew an awful lot about what was about to happen in the weeks leading up to the invasion. Are you still getting good intelligence from the Americans? And is it helping? Uh, yes, we rely on that intelligence. It helps a lot. Uh, that's true. 
because, of course, we do not have access to such satellite information and coordination that our U.S. partners uh, are making. Do you think the Russians could actually get away with installing a puppet and setting up a separate capital somewhere? Just going back to your earlier observation. They can capture the city, they can install the government, but then it will require from them to keep millions of soldiers in the ground in order to keep that territory under control. There is no popular support of Russian rule in Ukraine. So they will need to gather occupational force in hundreds, in thousands, in millions probably. I doubt that they have such resources. And would the Ukrainian forces keep fighting until they liberated the country in that uh, situation? This is a challenging question, to be honest, because we never recognized annexation of Crimea and occupation of Donbass, but it will require government decision. I believe we will fight effectively and we will liberate all territory of Ukraine that was under control of Ukrainian forces before Russian attack in last week. But what to do with the Donbass area uh, that was under control of Russia and Crimea, uh, it will require government decision. Right, and your president, who seems to be an incredibly brave man, has invited people with military experience from outside Ukraine to come and help with the fight. Have you had interest from Australians? Well, we have very big response from Australia, but, well, there are different people that propose different kind of help. Some are just calling and asking what is the bank account that they can send money. Some proposing just to host refugees from Ukraine. Some actually are willing to go and help Ukraine, but in different ways. Because, for example, I received a call from the truck driver who would like just to bring humanitarian aid to the border. Or from the medic who would like just to help our staff in the hospitals. But some of them, are yes, actually would like to take arm, uh, weapons in their arms. But as I mentioned before uh, in my interviews, we do not want for Australians, of course, to have any kind of trouble in terms of Australian legislation. So I ask everyone just to check legislation on this. But there are different countries with different positions and policies on this. Like, for example, UK, Denmark, Latvia recently commented on this, that they are totally fine in terms of government policy for their citizens uh, go and join our um, uh, fight. But again, there are different ways to help Ukraine. It is not only about fighting with weapons. You can assist with the simple help uh, on the ground with the humanitarian aid. Vladimir, I really appreciate the time you've given us and I think the world is in awe of the resistance that the Ukrainians are putting up and you know we all universally I think wish you well. Thanks Thank very, you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. That's all we have time for on this week's podcast. Subscribe to keep up to date with new episodes. Until next time, this is Policy, Guns and Money.